so Jake White was on some next level weirdness back in 2006 because <laughs> also at that point uh, Francois Stein had only started um, six matches for, for the Sharks at that point all of which were at 10 subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball Now you're welcome along, Sunday Papers. Great to have you with us. So I'll start by running you through the headlines. Uh, Liverpool feature on the back page. First off on the uh, Sunday Mirror, uh, Zebri goes bananas. So Liverpool now 11 points behind Arsenal after uh, yesterday's game. That's the back page of the Mirror. Uh, Sun Sport looking ahead to the Manchester Derby today. Early warning, the early being uh, early in Haaland. And he says, if I time my runs perfectly, no one can stop me. It would be arrogant if it wasn't true. So uh, that's Erling Haaland looking ahead to the Manchester derby and then uh, Arsenal above that after their win against uh, Spurs yesterday. Very impressive as well. We have the star, which uh, mentions Liverpool 3, Brighton 3 at the top. And then time is ticking. Pep warning to rival Ten Hag, where uh, he knows that he's under pressure for results, as all managers are, says Guardiola. We have the mail on Sunday then. Brian Mullins features at the very top. He was all-round class. That's uh, Peace Inside. Paddy Cullen pays loving tribute to one of the true greats of football. We'll come to that in a moment. We have Get Rid of VAR. So uh, various uh, participants over the weekend thus far in the Premier League are sick of VAR. They want uh, to see it just put to bed, including Marco Silva and Antonio Conte. And then Vera Pau, head of... A big week, big month for uh, Irish football. We're at a disadvantage for being better. So her point is that Scotland and Austria face on Thursday night, which is less than five days before the playoffs. So the um, preparation for the game is obviously trickier, given that they don't know who they're playing until five days before the game. We feel we've been given a disadvantage for being better. And also it's away from home. So she says revenue-wise, we're missing out on uh, revenue. But uh, she reckons she's not the only... um, person unhappy every single country is complaining about this system I'm not the only one so that's Vera Pau on the back page of the mail on Sunday Sunday Times big picture of Xhaka gunning for glory is the headline and then alongside that Lampard and Kenny hail the return of Seamus Coleman who played for Everton yesterday Uh, Frank Lampard delighted with how Seamus played Nathan Patterson of course injured at the moment so it allowed Coleman to get back in and uh, Lampard was hailing his experience and his quality and uh, he seemed to have a very good game on his return yesterday for Everton and then Sunday Independent Munster failed to impress and there are a few um, match reports to that effect uh, Munster didn't get the bonus point against Zebra yesterday perfect conditions fast track home advantage had the score had scored the third try early on and uh, huffed and puffed, puffed and never got the fourth and then uh, Klopp blast pools horrendous display so Jurgen Klopp didn't think Liverpool were too good uh, yesterday, very happy to say Michael Verney of the Irish Independent is here in studio, as is Gary O'Toole, Olympian and orthopaedic surgeon. You're both very welcome. You're uh, refusing to talk about Liverpool, so we can ignore all that, but I think it's looking Thank ominous. You, you're so <laughs> respectful of my, my, my wishes. <laughs> uh, uh, great to have you in. So, Brian Mullins, I suppose, is a, is a very good jumping off point because he features across the board. There are some fantastic tributes written to Brian Mullins. I don't know which ones jumped out to you, Michael. 
Yeah, the one with Mihal Clifford in the mail definitely would. He, he was talking to Paddy Cullen, obviously, in recent days. Um, it's just amazing. It's just such a legendary character. Like, most of what he did happened in his career before I was even born. He was retired in 1985, um, brought in by Hefo in 1974 as a teenager, really out of the blue. Uh, you know, a bit of a rugby prodigy, a bit of a cricket prodigy. Uh, comes in in 1974 as a teenager and just dominates and is able to dominate for the course of five or six years and obviously the the car crashed in where he wasn't able to run for 18 months as well he's just a, a fascinating man a fascinating character uh, Michal talks to Paddy Cullen here and he just says one story that really sticks with him and th- I thought this, this is fascinating this is when a player of that level just has an effect on everybody else around him in the way that they're almost mesmerised by him while he's doing feats on the pitch. So Paddy just said, what will always stick with me to this day is the gasps you could hear from the crowd inside in Crow Park when Brian and Jack O'Shea used to field ball or used to contest ball in the middle of the field. It was something to behold. There were times when I was so totally caught up in the sheer joy of watching this man in operation because that was how special you felt he was. You almost forgot you were playing yourself and you just stand back almost. I, I, I was privilege to play alongside Brian Whelan with Burr and there's things he did on the pitch and you're just like that's absolutely amazing and you just forget about what you're doing and it sounds like the same thing happened Paddy here like I was watching a clip back from the 1979 Leinster final where Dublin are in big bother awfully or look like they're going to finally beat them and Brian Mullins just catches a kick out I think he slams the ball back at Paul O'Kelly who uh, tackles him fairly uh, harshly and he just they needed a score and he just walks up the pitch, passes it off to Bernard Brogan, it's a goal, Dublin win. Mm. And that was just the sort of player he was. Um, and there's been amazing tributes over the last couple of days. Yes. Paddy Cullen finishes with that lovely line, very sweet line, he'll always be with us. Yeah. You know, and there's a bond there, I suppose, which he's talking about. Colm O'Rourke, Sunday Independent. It's very hard to think of Brian Mullins and use the word was when talking about him. A colossus of a man in his prime. He says he was an indestructible force. By any standards, he compares favourably with any midfielder of the last 50 years I regarded him and Jack O'Shea as probably the two best players of my playing days and it was a rivalry that always attracted huge interest my memories of Brian Mullins are of a long haired teenager in 74 through all his Dublin years with missing teeth and a constant struggle to never give in he did not seek publicity and had a healthy disregard for the media once I wrote a piece about him when he'd finished playing and listed all of his assets as well as saying that he was occasionally dirty awkward, cantankerous, gruff and difficult as a person. I finished it off by saying I wished he had played for Meath. Despite the fact that we were very friendly, he was furious with the article, even though I thought the whole thing was quite complimentary. It took a while for normal relations to resume, but when he had to say that was the end of it, though exchanges with him could be uh, quite colourful. When you met him, even up to recently, it was the size of his hands that you would notice immediately. They were like rough shovels, so it was no wonder he could grab a ball with one hand and push everyone aside. It's hard to think of him in the past tense as it only seems like last year when he dominated Crow Park. Maybe Anton O'Toole needed someone to talk football with. If that's the case, Tooler would be doing most of the listening. So that's O'Rourke playing, you know, huge tribute to Brian Mullins as well. Uh, he, a, he was a man you knew. Yeah, there is an irony in that piece actually where Column uh, is playing for UCD against Vincent's when uh, Brian was at the height of his career and there was a big rivalry there. And I m- met Brian through UCD, where he's been working for the last uh, 20 years or so uh, in the sports uh, department there. And he was very, very involved and very, very pro-student uh, athletes. 
I would meet him on almost a weekly basis, just walking into the gym and uh, stop and have a chat. And my association with him goes back from the age of six, actually, because uh, <coughs> he went to NIHE in Limerick with my first coach, who um, uh, learned her swimming technique out of a book down there in NIHE. And um, they graduated uh, <coughs> with the same degree. And uh, just a couple of months ago, or last year, early last year, uh, he texted me and he said, have you got a number for Sister Gwen? <coughs> and I said, uh, yeah, yeah, she's a nun now, uh, my first coach. She's in an enclosed order in, uh, in uh, Stillorgan, one of the Carmelite orders. Um, and I said, hey, I have a number for her. And he said, OK, good, good. And that was it. Uh, and then I met him a couple of weeks later and I said, uh, did you get in touch with Sister Gwen? And he said, yes, we did. And Sister Gwen's sister had also gone to NIHE in Limerick and had died two years previously, but the class from NIHE had got together and had signed a little card uh, in Audrey's memory to give it to Sister Gwen to let him know. And that was, that was what he was doing, but he didn't tell me he was doing that. And it was such a, a, a lovely thing to do. So when Colm refers to his brusqueness and everything else, it, he would be that kind of a forthright individual but a heart of gold and an absolute soft-centred, uh, uh, caring individual when, when it came down to it and did things, um, uh, which that team do. I, I know a lot of that Dublin team from the, the mid-70s um, through different connections. And that team are amazingly uh, close with one another. They have a huge bond. And when he says uh, he'll always be with us, they, they, they'll pause and they'll remember him and uh, they'll go off and they'll have their beers and their banter and uh, they'll, they'll, they, they won't ever forget and nor should we forget him because as people keep on reminding us uh, with uh, um, he's one of the greats uh, and uh, he, he's gone too early you know 68 years of age uh, he should be enjoying far many uh, days at Crow Park watching and he should be you know still involved with UCD and I know UCD will certainly miss him. Uh, Roy Curtis said a piece I was reading it last night on the independent website it's in the Sunday World uh, today and I mean it's it's lyrical in its quality the way he, he writes about um, Brian Mullins so he has lines like Anne Olivia's William Wallace an unbending blonde braveheart at the heart of a 1970s insurgency a galvanising warrior prince custodian of an aura touching mythical level and on it goes, and you know, in this kind of vein, a son of a Clare father and a Kerry mother, gifted Hill 16 days, forever immune to erosion, memories that will live beyond the last breath of every witness to his titanic will. So it's, it's a fantastically uh, written piece. And he does mention, I, I, when I read this piece last night, I went and, and dug out the podcast and I'd recommend it because Mullins, for me, I know the deep voice and uh, I can imagine the hands that O'Rourke is talking about. And I did see him just crossing the road uh, I guess earlier this year and, and even for his, his age of a previous generation he's still a, a big presence uh, but Roy Curtis mentioned a 2019 interview on Shay Dalton's The 1% podcast which I hadn't heard before with lots of great people on it and Roy Curtis said it offers a compelling insight into a cerebral a reflective figure and it reveals the smooth varnish which with which he could coat sometimes sharp edges and uh, it was an amazing interview and, and uh, very cerebral very thoughtful and they're like a, a Clontarf 
uh, child, Styles Road, Clontarf. I'm kind of in that vague area now, so I, I knew the place he was talking about. And he was making the point that Clontarf is this incredible sporting area. You've got the rugby pitch, the cricket pitch, tennis, soccer, and uh, played all of those sports as well as GA. And the only reason he ended up at Vincent's is that the Clontarf GA under 16's team didn't have enough players to field a team. Wouldn't happen today in Jack McCaffrey's club and they're thriving. But they didn't have an under-16s team, so someone said, well, you better just go the 2 or 3k up the road to St. Vincent's and Kevin Heffernan's there and the rest is history and it's a, you know the, the kind of mainstay of Dublin football, Vincent's. But uh, really great interview if anyone wants to kind of listen to his voice and, and hear him. Vincent's is a big thing there, Joe, as well. Like, for a guy that only went into Vincent's at 16 years of age, like he's absolutely like idolised up there. Um, I think it was Ke- uh, Kevin Heff- or someone had said, uh, one of the Vincent's legends anyway had said that you could just as easily see uh, Brian Mullins on the sideline with the senior team as he could sweeping you know, a street on the club cleaning day or whatever. That's the way he was and that's the way it was around Vincent's. So many legendary characters as well and to be uh, to be as accepted in at that age like usually it's you know family heritage guys coming through or girls coming through parents played grandparents played a guy comes in at 16 and he's one of the greatest legends in an absolutely legendary club like yeah and was manager when the last one won the Dublin senior football title I think five years ago um, still heavily heavily involved chairman for ages director of football like you just as you say there Gary even talking about UCD he had his kind of he had his hands kind of everywhere his prints were everywhere almost like and he just wanted to wanted to better people and improve people through the medium of sport mm. uh, Charlie Redmond beside that Roy Curtis piece uh, writes a lovely piece as well and he makes the point I didn't realise this no other man has ever lost five All-Ireland finals to the same county Yeah, so he lost five to Kerry between 75 and 85 and he says as well I remember him finally telling me once Charlie if a match is passing you by do something get booked start a skirmish do anything get yourself in the match uh, to make the other team take you ser- seriously and if you need backup in the row don't worry there'll be plenty there with you so. On that backup in the row there was um, it was it was basically a, a team amongst that Dublin team that when somebody just says somebody's getting at you Joe you don't get him back somebody else takes care of business and it was in one of the papers yesterday where Brian Mullins decided somebody was being looked after and Brian Mullins decided it was him that was going to take care of business that day and uh, I think it was uh, they were playing Tyrone I think and it was a fairly hardy book that was given out the punishment but uh, <laughs> he didn't come back for any more shall we say anyway he was just such a colossus like as you say there I think like, he had awful tr- trouble with his back like he used to have to lie on the floor for long periods after games to try and loosen his back car crash, yeah know. yeah and, like he was 18 months after that uh, accident before he could get back running again to get back running is you know an achievement in itself to get back playing to the level he could probably athletically maybe wasn't the same but he still had it up in the head and was able to control again from the middle of the park yeah one of the pieces makes that point Mm -hmm. that he was a different player after the crash but uh, you know pulled the strings more which is very impressive as well speaks of the intelligence yeah you can't be as physical uh, when you've been uh, injured as badly as he was Uh, and then you know interestingly that Dublin team and their camaraderie gave rise to a Meath team with similar camaraderie and it, it, I don't think it's any coincidence that a Meath team would arrive on the scene uh, with the same blueprint to the Dublin team uh, that were dominant before them um, and uh, you know the, the Dublin, Kerry, Meath uh, uh, teams have all one thing in common and it's that 
in for one, all oh, for yeah. one, you know. So yeah. uh, there's, um, it was a great era. Um, not that this era is any worse, but I don't think that there, um, the bond amongst the players is as strong as the bond that you see it with those three teams uh, through the 70s and 80s. Uh, no. What's that I just on? think that the, with the advent of social media and everything else and the, the, um, the focus uh, from, and I don't mean this in a critical sense, from the media on the, the teams uh, doesn't allow for that to uh, occur. Uh, I don't think they get that time uh, to foster those relationships that uh, the, these teams were allowed uh, to to bond. I mean, you, you're looking at this picture here, this uh, of the team, you know, and you, you you see Brian on 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 the periphery and sitting front and centre is Tony Hanahoe, and um, you you just look at that team and you just go, wow, those guys are an impressive bunch, you know, High David achievers. Hickey, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and. You, how, how lucky were we to, to have them, you know, because they inspired each other both on and off the pitch, it seems. To another high achiever. So we have Paul O'Donovan on page 66 of the mail, which is just worth a mention. You picked this out, Gary. And even Keel is the yeah. headline. So, I mean, Paul, uh, he... he if, he fertilizes his own mystery, I think, you know, by uh, some, of the, some of the stuff he says, and um, none more so than the interview he gave to David Gillick um, last week after the World Championship. And I, I presume it's purposely uh, opaque and uh, uh, mystifying. Uh, until you read uh, what uh, Mark Gallagher has said about his reading materials that he, uh, he, he, he swallows and he, he, he likes reading. So <coughs> he's... An enigma to me uh, because <clears throat> I would have thought uh, uh, that having achieved everything that he's achieved, that it would have dampened the flame a little bit or that he wouldn't be as uh, keen for success. And I've read him incorrectly, it seems. Uh, it, this, is, this is a guy that is just doing this uh, for fun and for uh, a pastime. The medals, the glory, the attention, uh, the, the fame or infamy or potential wealth that might come with it are secondary, tertiary, you know, not even gains in his, uh, in, in, in his book. He's completely devoid of any interest in that, in that kind of thing. Uh, and that's what's mystifying to me. Uh, and um, he studied physiotherapy. Now he's back to, uh, into his final year of medicine. It seems to be falling right for him time-wise that he'll finish uh, his uh, medicine. Uh, and then I'm not sure what he's going to do uh, for the year prior to Paris uh, because he should be an intern then. And um, mm. the horrific times uh, uh, or hours that he'll have to put in then. How's, how's he going to do his training? But he just seems indestructible. Uh, and um, I... Full of admiration for him, full of admiration for him, um, full of admiration for any rower that can do anything like that. It's a sport that uh, I find, uh, if I wasn't a swimmer, that's the sport that I would think uh, I would have loved to have done that. You know, I would have loved to have done that. Because, that is miserable. Barbaric. Yeah. Uh, miserable, uh, tough, tough, you know. Uh, Boring, it's and it's monotonous. <laughs> And, and you're, you're saying swimming up and down in a swimming pool and not talking or uh, having Sorry, anything. I wouldn't uh, go near swimming either. 
At least you well, talk, Gary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, you could talk at the end. Uh, yeah, but uh, it, I just, I just find that uh, very appealing. Um, now, there's a bit of this article as well, where obviously Paul has taken the Mickey about. You know, they're all farmer sons, and uh, it's a link in with the National Dairy Council, who are obviously supporting him. But um, so he's no fool with the media, it yeah. would seem. Uh, and I think that at times the media are being played by him. Uh, and uh, I just say fair play to him. Uh, and I hope that he goes on and uh, is successful in Paris as well. Well, it's interesting. His most recent interview with David Gillick, where he was asked, you know, so he's five time world champion. And what does it feel like? And he said, it's fine. Yeah. And there is a performative aspect to that. I definitely, for the first time ever, heard criticism of Paul O'Donovan and people said, well, maybe it had crossed the line from cute and interesting and a bit different and funny to, is it a touch too standoffish and verging on rude? That was certainly um, mentioned and it was mentioned to him. And so it left some wondering, writes Mark Aller, if after Olympic gold, silver medals and and everything else, uh, he was getting blasé about success and he said... uh, to be fair, that's not the rude accusation. I don't think he was being rude, but certainly people thought, oh, you're being asked a question. Maybe just answer the question. But he said of the blasé about success, he said, no, that's not the case at all. Uh, that's just the way I am. It was the way I felt about the race. It was fine because he had said to David Gillick, it's fine. I don't get too excited about winning or losing. Rowing's about the challenge for me. I don't get too high or too happy about winning races because there are going to be times when I won't be winning races. And I'd like to think I'll be fine in those days, too. It's not a case of me getting blasé. Can I just come in on the back of that? Um, I don't know if you know much about Barney Curley, the legendary racing figure. He would have organised or planned some of the greatest coups of all time in the history of racing. Like Unbelievable things that will never happen again. He passed away last year. He was actually honoured in Bellewstown during the week. But he... uh, he always talked about, you know, the wins. How did he deal with the wins? How did he... Did he go mad? Did he do whatever? And he would just sit in his chair and just be... He, He always stayed level. There was no highs, there were no lows, because there were going to be loads of lows. Horses were going to die in the gallop. Paula Donovan is, is going to lose races, so there's going to be lows. There's going to be highs, you're going to win world championships, you're going to win Olympics. But the really high achievers are able to stay level sure. the whole way through, and they don't get lost in it all. And it just seems like this is just part of a, like a plan or a process in his life or whatever, and... The, his longevity will probably benefit massively from this because I don't know like I'd be I'd be gone crazy if I was after winning here I'm sure you, you two will be too but it takes a special type of athlete a special type of person to be able to stay level and that's probably why he'd be wrong in six or seven years time I suspect it? as well he has a certain healthy disdain for the media circus you know he, he, they went viral he did the Graham Norton thing I think he mm. looked at it and realised this does very little for me I'm not going to play the part here if I don't feel like it well there's there's no um recompense at the end of it you know so why should he do it why should he be used by people for their entertainment mm-hmm. and uh, I, I agree with him uh, why 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 is it up to him to entertain everyone afterwards and say something nice uh, or funny or off off the wall mm-hmm. i think what some of the criticism that you're referring to again uh, in other aspects of the media pertain to the fact that if you come second or third to him or there's someone out there looking at this and their goal is to be a world champion and this is how a world championship gold medal is received by someone who has achieved it, 
then why would you bother if you don't seem to get so much satisfaction out of it or you're not even smiling when you're when you're being told you're the world champion so that's where it comes from you yes. know the the joy the the elation that you should have associated with a world championship medal wasn't apparent on his face afterwards and I'm sure there was a little bit of, you know, um, skullduggery going on with him, you know, that uh, he was purposefully playing it down. But for other people whose lifetime goal is to be where he is standing there now, they look at that and someone might say, well, maybe it's not like I think it would be. Maybe it's exactly as he would be. But then you you, you see uh, McCarthy, uh, he he was just laughing in the background. You you have to take it from the fact that you're looking at the guy that knows him best, who is obviously entertained by this, and he knows that Paul, I hope, it's just taking the mickey. Yeah, just no, on, I, that, I on that as well, what Gary said there. It's like, you know, the episode of The Simpsons where Bart does that, you know, I, did, I didn't do it. And everybody's trying to get him to say that line the whole time. It's like you're waiting for Paul O'Donovan to say something. Yeah. He's, he's refused to fall into that narrative. I have to say, I find one of the most interesting things about the two guys is Gary O'Donovan. I know. That I find, like he was, uh, he was their sub for the Olympics. I think he was actually gone home before the race had taken place. I think he's like I think Gary and Paul together Gary was kind of maybe the one that was maybe always smiling a bit more or whatever and Paul refuses to put in that or complete that narrative without him but I think what he's doing now and being left in the cold somewhat by Fintan McCarthy's emergence I think is fascinating as well it's it's, it's a strange dynamic yeah it really is sure There is a running theme, you know. So you've had Neil, Neil O'Toole in here, and he's on one of your sound bites as well. And the um, on the off the ball, uh, you know, about sport being important. Uh, this kind of quote that he comes out with, because when you give it up, uh, yeah. life is absolutely. And I won't repeat what he says, but um, so you have. And uh, Niall, who was around when I was swimming, uh, we were often confused with one another. You know, oh, are you the rower? And depending on who it was, I'd say, no, <laughs> he's my brother uh, and I'm in the water. He's out of the water. And then you had th- that time where the, they had the awesome foursome that came forth in the Atlanta Olympic Games. And then you had s- the likes of Sam Lynch that uh, <coughs> also became a world champion in single skulls. So we have this running uh, uh, theme throughout. And the one thing they have in common is that they are absolutely made of steel. Yes. Uh, I have never seen uh, you know, people like them. They are tough as nails. Yeah. And that's why I say it appeals to me. I, I, I would often look at those and say they're tougher, stronger, fitter, more dedicated than I am. I wonder what I have made it yes, if, I, yes, if yes. I had been in that position. Do well, know? I suspect he's very genuine when he talks about just doing it because he loves rowing because that is the only reason you could sustain the training is that if you just love the craft day in and day out for years on end because he's won more than enough to satisfy that need. And that's the, that's the great thing about him. By the way, on the, um, the criticism, I, don't, I wouldn't claim to know Paul O'Donovan very well, but I've sat beside him once or twice at events and is such a super nice, genuine person. Very interested, asks questions, listens, great conversationalist. And I suspect he does look at the media thing and think, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not the pull like a dog guy. Mm. Don't try and put me in that box. I'm not going near that again. And uh, his reading would, well, I can only speak for myself, but I would certainly um, hide my Kindle if you were to read what I'm reading by comparison. 
And weren't you boasting about your English degree in Maynooth well, during the week? as Kenny Cunningham you? said, a yeah. degree from Maynooth is nothing to boast about. <laughs> we were left with a bit of egg in your face there, John. In fairness, it was radio, several, radio silence when we were twelve away for these clues turned into answers and they just didn't arrive. Yeah. But so I, did you read Dostoevsky? I was just about to say, so he's, um, he's talking to Mark Gallagher in this piece, Polo Donovan, to unwind lately. I've uh, been buried deep in this collection of Frank O'Connor's short stories, some interesting ones in there. They really get you thinking. And he's a good Cork author too, he explained. And he's moved on from Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, who he was reading prior to the Tokyo Games. When pressed on his favourite book from the Russian masters, O'Donovan suggests the brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky's great morality tale. One of its famous maxims is, above all, don't lie to yourself. What's your favourite Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, Gary? I have never read it, but then I'm not an English graduate like you, Joe. Well, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Uh, pretty impressive fella all round, isn't he? And trained to be a surgeon? He's certainly uh, finishing uh, medical school. I'm not sure what, what he's going to do after that. Right. Uh, do you know him? No. All right. No, we yeah. haven't crossed The balance points. of it as well, Joe, like the fact that like by all accounts, I, they might be somewhat tongue in cheek, but they don't seem to have practiced that much together before the World Championship. They didn't. They were training yeah. apart. Yeah. And like he was doing a lot. Of, he was doing a lot on just a, a raw machine. He hit the water at the weekends if he was lucky. It's probably going to be something similar coming into Paris, which I find fasc- fascinating. I also would like to refute something you said, Gary. There is an agricultural ignorance bred into farmers' sons. <laughs> I, am, I am one of them. And, uh, if you notice, uh, if you could see in a GA team, you could probably pick out the guys that are. Really? Yeah, no, you probably could. Yeah. There's a stupid thing where you'd put your head in your arm and whatever in because you're used to getting kicked by a bullock from in a crush <laughs> or something like that. Or there is a, there's, okay. I, I do think there is an agricultural ignorance spread into guys who, are, who have been brought up around farming and have been heavily involved in it, yeah. To their detriment sometimes. It's funny you say that. Keith Wood was on a while back and he did say, I know this sounds mm. antiquated and cliched, but Munster could do with a few more farmers in their team. Back to the the roots of Munster. I'm telling you, yeah. No, I I I wouldn't I wouldn't disagree with that. Now, to be honest with you, yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. There's a uh, number one. There's a and I'm like they're all they all work hard. Don't get me wrong, but those guys were saying they're up, you know, milking cows at five or six in the morning. Miserable conditions. You're getting you're sticking your head in around the cow's elder where no one else would go. You could get a kick anywhere. You know what I mean? It's just you're, you're used to taking slaps. Like my 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 mother and father are still farming now. My mother turned seventy the other day. She's got more kicks in arms, shoulders, legs, and she just keeps coming back for more. She showed me her, her shoulder one time. It was black, and I was like, "Where, where are you going? Oh, I'm just going down to feed whatever." And then you know a dangerous heifer that would probably run at you. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah, just yeah, yeah. there's a madness to it, no, and that madness would probably reflect on the pitch as well that they would just be fearless I'd say as well The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball Uh, Something totally different Wayne Rooney page A of the Sunday Times you both (laughs) picked this out it's funny you know I would say most weeks one of the two guests tends to pick out Wayne Rooney's piece more often than not he tends to have interesting things to say or something to say uh, this is page 8 and 9 he's looking it's all things Manchester uh, Derby and he just speaks initially of you know Man United's plan today is going to be similar to Arsenal they're going to have to defend deep hit them on the break Eric Ten Hag will have worked on distances between the players all week closing the lines mm-hmm. trying to stop City breaking them down and you know he makes points like he thinks that Mar- Riyad Mahrez is going to have a big game today against uh, Malassia that he'll cut in on 
his left foot, Malassia's right foot and expose him. So keep an eye out for that. Or if you're listening Monday, you can uh, let us know how it went. And then he uh, talks about Guardiola. Since I've become a coach, we've talked on the phone. We've met at City's training ground a couple of occasions. And when I was still a player with Everton, I had a good 45 minutes with him after we played at the Etihad, just chatting in the tunnel. He spoke about what he wanted from his team and how they play, etc. And he mentioned that, um, I suppose, pioneering, innovative aspect that is Guardiola. I remember playing Bayern Munich. It was the first time I'd ever seen fullbacks come into midfield. I remember looking at Philip Lamb in midfield thinking, what's going on here? And like, it is amazing. You watch even Zinchenko in midfield for Arsenal yesterday. All these Guardiola touches are now mimicked and commonplace. Like it's the, the ultimate form of uh, flattery. But you, you picked out Rooney. I did, yeah. Um, his column um, is well written and well ghosted, I presume. Uh, and it comes across uh, as the very basics. And it's easy for me to understand. Like when I was reading this, you just uh, what stood out to me was that Wayne Rooney was understanding of the fact of how the Manchester United training would have gone this week in order to counteract Pep Guardiola's uh, attack uh, ambitions. And I never thought of it like that. I, 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 I'm still of the, uh, uh, you know, that you, you turn up, uh, you're closer to this, you, you run a few laps, then you go through a few moves, then you do a warm down and, you, <coughs> and the kicker might stay out or the penalty taker might stay out and take a little bit more. The, the fascination lies in the detail of the training now and that a lot of the training takes place in, the, you know, in a classroom rather than on, on the football pitch. Um, so uh, Wayne himself um, comes across really likeable in, the, in, in these articles uh, and uh, really, really uh, insightful. His derby job, which ended uh, last last year, and now he's over in the states being a manager. You can see how he, he understands the game. He's not he's not just a uh, a person that turned up and s- played well. He actually understands it. And when he remarked upon the fact that he sees Lamb in midfield and he he recognises this, he says, "What what is going yes. on here?" A lot of, I presume, a lot of the players wouldn't have recognised this changing pattern that was emerging in in, in German football. But he was there and he he was young at this time and he recognised that. But interesting to me was the fact that that time that they were beaten by Manchester City uh, 6-1, his wife uh, Colleen had a birthday party that night and he wasn't expecting to be on the end of a 6-1 drubbing. He wanted to cancel it, but there were too many people, including some of the Manchester City players who were invited to the party. And so he had to go then and uh, Hart, the Joe Hart is one of his friends and he's at the, um, he's at the birthday party. And that again made me think, you know, you would say that it is incompatible that Rain Rooney and Joe Hart should go out for dinner after the match because you can't imagine very many Manchester United or Manchester City fans meeting up tonight to go and celebrate anything together. But the players do. So the players don't take it as seriously as the fans. And that's a messed up world that is really messed up. It's the great myth of the pantomime that they all hate each other. I heard you talking about this during the summer. I was driving into <coughs> races one day, Joe, or one evening, and you were talking about this. That there's no the Arsenal United rivalry doesn't like there's no there's not going to be a tunnel incident. Like no. there's not going to be anything like that. Generally, because and I suppose part of it is to do with the international squad maybe bonding more, or you know they just seem to be pally pally a lot more. There's not going to be guys taking legs from under each, you know, underneath each other on the pitch right anymore. Well, I think as well. I was just saying to Gary, we we just 
briefly chatting before we came on air. I think increasingly as the money has become so extreme in this world, they look at each other and it's like, God, we, we have so much more in common. Mm. We're the 1%. You know, our kids are in the same nice school. Our partners were in the same nice gym. I have so much more in common with you than yeah. the fan that increasingly we're insulated from the real world. So, of course, we're going to gravitate towards each other and, you know, our partners might mix in the same circle. So, like, the notion, like, that the Liverpool and Everton players are going out for dinner as mm. Gary's crying and, and ignoring Everton fans, <laughs> you know, like, I'd say grow up, uh, Gary, really. <laughs> yeah, I just find it um, fascinating that uh, they, they, they could do that. And I would say to you outside as well, it, it, during I think during the summer or last summer I saw a picture of Johnny Sexton and uh, uh, Peter O'Mahony together and uh, I said that absolutely does not make sense to me Johnny why are you hanging around with that guy and you realise that uh, Gary he actually doesn't uh, have this monster uh, bias that you have yeah. uh, he, he's actually a good friend of his get over it you know Ireland teammates yeah Yeah. get over it Gary and uh, move on with your life and it's very easy to get drawn into this and you know uh, the sporting rivalries are less about the what goes on the pitch as more to do with what goes on off the pitch is what I think I I find it a very likeable that uh, for such a high-achieving, intelligent type, you still have this naive uh, fan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I promised myself last year, uh, last uh, last May, uh, that I did a charity cycle, uh, the Ring of Bera, on the Saturday, and I came in from that. And uh, I had uh, Leinster were playing uh, La Rochelle in the final of the European Cup, mm. and I just got in from the cycle and. Uh, we all know what happened in that game. And then later on that night, uh, Real Madrid were playing against Liverpool in the final of the European Cup again. And it was perhaps the most upsetting sporting day I've ever uh, had to endure. And I promised myself after that, I'm not getting involved anymore. I'm, I'm not going to get so involved emotionally in these things. And there I was last Friday night in the RDS, sitting there again with my Leinster season ticket going, you idiot. <laughs> what are you doing to yourself? And you, know, you say, here we go again. And I know, uh, and I know I'll be the same again. Uh, but it's, it's very, very, uh, it's an antithesis to me. It's, it's medicine for my soul to re- read that I really shouldn't be taking it as seriously because Wayne Rooney doesn't take it as seriously as I would be taking it. So I should let it go. It's funny, Gary, because the GA scene now, particularly GA club scenes, 20, 30 years ago, the thoughts of, we'll just say, Boran Kuleri would have a rivalry. The thoughts of Boran Kuleri players mingling together on a night out or having drinks together, unheard of. Right. Now, it's just, it's just becoming more commonplace. It okay. just is. Uh, I'm Bor, we mingle with Rhinus, we mingle with Kuleri, we mingle with Trump Cullen, whatever. It's just, I don't know, the world has changed, I suppose. But you're a nice chap. You see, so everyone uh, likes you. I haven't <laughs> seen him on a pitch yet, in yeah. fairness. That's interesting. No, I, I, like, man, that, is, that has, it has softened an awful lot. And do you um, consider that a bad thing? Oh, part of me does, part of ah, me doesn't. Yeah, but it's, it's nice just thing. because it, it is... Um, I, was on, I was on a couple of months ago here when we were talking about rivalries. Like, to me, bitter is always better when it comes <laughs> to a rivalry. But that, that's just me. And maybe, maybe it's because I'm not yeah. 18 or 19 and I'm not on Instagram and see it with young lads. The way, you know, the way it, it, the world is changing, yeah, I suppose, yeah. and you have to adapt to that. But it can be a bit unsettling at times when you see your own players maybe, you know, really pally-pally and friendly with lads that potentially you were trying to kill, you know, a couple hours previous. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, the yeah. generation are more mature than, like, you 
potentially grumbling so, yeah. over your pints and <laughs> why are we talking to them like? the Sunday papers on off the ball the Sunday papers on off the ball Right, let's press on because we're going to be out of time if we keep up this pace. So um, we've talked about Brian Mullins, Paul O'Donovan, Wayne Rooney's piece there. Um, Paul Kimmage's piece in the Sunday Independent, page 21, is very interesting. Suppose you flick onto it and what captures the eye, first of all, is that there's a photograph and three members of the photograph are very recognisable if you're a golf fan at all. This is at the Alfred Dunhill, which is uh, really, if you're a non-golfing fan, this is where the winners of life congregate uh, <laughs> for a week every year it's well, the you're here, Joe. I know like I can't look at it, it okay, just yeah, no yeah. it's it's too upsetting it just okay. it just kills me so uh, celebrities high achieving types play in the pro-am with players and so you have Rory McIlroy his father Jerry they're in a team together and you recognise Danny Willett and they're on the um, I presume it's on the Swilkin Bridge yeah St Andrews and then there's a face that I don't recognise I don't think most readers would recognise Jimmy Dunn is his name and so Paul Kimmage, as is his uh, want, is following the McElroys around and uh, he's taking notes on the match they're having McElroy and his father against Danny Willard and this guy Jimmy Dunn. And uh, it starts off and Jimmy Dunn and Danny Willard are behind and then they start pulling back the lead and uh, Jimmy Dunn turns to Jerry McElroy and said, where's the reporter? In brackets, he's looking at me, says Paul Kimmage. I hope you're writing this down, says Jimmy Dunn, waving a notebook. One of the great comebacks, he laughs. And Paul Kimmage says, but there's a better one. And then that leads into Jimmy Dunn's story, which is, uh, I suppose, quite something. And, and, and again, you, you find yourself in this piece reading about somebody you don't know, but it's about how September 11th changed his life. He, he, he came through at Notre Dame. He had a degree in economics, was on Wall Street with his best friend who he met playing golf, Chris uh, Quakenbush, or Q, as, uh, or Quack, as he's called. And they end up working at a company together, Sandler O'Neill. By 1993, the company was thriving, had moved into a gleaming office on the 104th floor at the World Trade Centre. And September 11th happens. Jimmy Dunn is on a golf course when it happens. And uh, he left his clubs in the tee, raced back to the clubhouse. He knew from the moment he set eyes on the TV that they, that's his colleagues, could not have survived. Quack, that's his best friend who ended up also working at the same company. Quack, Herman, the owner, his assistant, Deborah Paris. The company employed 171 people on the 104th floor of the South Tower. 83 had gone to work that morning. 66 had died of the 171 people who worked for the company. Uh, Rushes back to New York. And I guess the amazing part of the piece, he would rebuild the company. This is the vow he made himself. He would rebuild the company, honour his friends and colleagues for the rest of his life. Their families would receive their salaries and health coverage. Any bonus due would be doubled and he would set up a trust to fund the education of their children. 21 years later, he's honoured every pledge. Now it's Wednesday at the old course and he has golf on his mind, the game that saved his life. And uh, at a point, Paul Kimmage asked him about when he went back to play golf and how he got back into it. And uh, he talked about playing Augusta with Billy Payne a few months afterwards. That was how he got back into it. And he holds up his ball and it's marked. And on the ball is a cue. So cue being for Quack, his best friend. So a fellow who's carrying those uh, victims of September 11th around with him. And that's, I suppose, a, a synopsis of the piece, which is worth uh, reading for the full treatment. But um, yeah, really nice way to go and cover this golf tournament, unexpected way. And, and like I said, you recognise three faces in that piece and maybe the most interesting man is the one you don't recognise. I would just, yeah, like I wouldn't have known 
Jimmy Dunn from Adam, oh. like being honest with you. Um, and I think the thing about a really good piece is that you don't necessarily know the characters involved and it draws you in. And I said it to you off air, Joe, as well. I think the way Paul has written it, it's peculiar. Usually a lot of the best stuff goes at the start and you draw the reader in. To me, is all the best stuff at the end. Mm. So I say reading and it's like, they always say in journalism, you, should try, you have to have a payoff at the end. Like the payoff comes... In, in in a great amount at the end, I think it's it's a fascinating story. Um, it's just fascinating that he's that he's gone back and rebuilt the company and no. just made sure that people's lives who were unimaginably affected, he has done as much as he could possibly do to make sure that life continued with some sort of order. Because for the first part of it, the the jealous, petty uh, type in me is looking at this guy going. I Okay, I'm delighted for this Wall Street guy who's playing golf with them. You yeah. know, making me sick here. Yeah. And by the end, very different perspective. Yeah, and uh, it's very easy to um, to judge people uh, straight off. You know, uh, mm. and <clears throat> there's a degree of envy about uh, the situation in which he finds himself. And then when you find out what he had to do to get to that point in his life, you say, "Oh." Oh, yes. Now I feel bad about uh, how I felt about it. He's allowed to play. I'll let yeah, him play. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, it, it's part of the, the the Rory circle. You know, there's so much going on around Rory McIlroy yeah. that is just so fascinating, and Rory seems to attract and uh, engage uh, these individuals that are f- phenomenal, as you say, achievers, mm. but. Uh, just great human beings uh, and uh, it's no coincidence that the, there they are the four of them together um, I mean Jerry looks like the happiest man in the world yeah, uh, just uh, he I just is living the life as eh? I watch Jerry live the life I think good on you yeah worked yeah. two jobs yeah. did it all for the love of his son wasn't it, it wasn't a, a guaranteed investment in like it's all going to come up, up good even though he did put that bet on him to win the Open before he was 25 yeah. but yeah, it's lovely to see him enjoy it now. Yeah, and just the the I, I would say every day every day is Saturday for for Jerry. You know, <laughs> uh, it's just an amazing uh, life that he has uh, for himself, or that Rory has given him. Uh, and there's a huge amount of pressure on Rory to keep on doing that for him. But it's uh, it's the characters around Rory McIlroy that uh, are equally as fascinating as Rory himself, because you get the impression from this uh, this uh, piece that Rory doesn't let people in to that circle unless they are going to contribute to the Rory McIlroy universe. And They've got to be worthy of being in his yeah. presence. Uh, he does. I, I wouldn't say I don't know Rory McIlroy. I wouldn't say he suffers fools at all. Uh, and uh, it's uh, it's interesting to see that a guy like this that we knew nothing about, uh, we're now talking about, um, and he is obviously of the uh, uh, has admirable qualities that Rory looks at him and says, "Yeah, I like what you did. You know, that's simple. You know, I, mm. you, you're you're true, honest. You endeavoured to do it." Now, there's lots of people that lost people in the in in the twin towers who made pledges and promises who weren't able to deliver, but not true lack of effort. But this guy had the ways and means and the effort and the money to, in order to see see his promises through. It's a lovely piece, um, you know, and uh, you know. Declaring my interest here, Paul is a great friend of mine. I, I love reading his piece. I think that his pieces are often worth the price of the paper alone. Uh, so it's uh, it's great. Uh, 
And I love when he writes on uh, th this kind of periphery. Um, he's just got a wonderful way about him. He's a great storyteller. Well, a part of it reads like a novel, you know. It's, uh, it's got that quality. I do That point you make about Rory's circle is very interesting. And even the pro-am circuit. So week to week, every Wednesday, he's playing in a pro-am. I mean, it does strike me that for a lot of these golfers, in the same way that the Queen, the late Queen, thought that the world smelt of fresh paint was the old saying these guys must think the world is full of millionaires and high achievers because they're in invariably the people they play pro-ams with they have such access to such interesting people if like i suspect rory is they're interested enough to recognize this is the greatest networking opportunity mm. you could ever have like every wednesday i get to meet these potentially brilliant people yeah well well what they what what the piece says about the reason that he was not in the twin towers that day was that he was playing in a pro-am uh, and that he uh, was playing 200 games of golf a year uh, whilst he was uh, working as a stockbroker uh, so he's obviously very very good at his job but uh, has another side to him which is obviously the personality side side of things but um the, Rory's one mistake, if you want to call it that, was that he did let he did go and playing with Donald Trump, uh, and then he turned around and people picked him up on it and said, "Why did you do that?" And he said, "Well, the president of the United States calls you and says you want to play a game of golf. You, you know, you're going to see what the president is like. I mean, I've got to go." But that was it. He's done. Went in, out of Rory's circle gone good night mm. i don't uh, you're not i'm not doing this again mm. and then that was it no apologies he'll see it judge it for himself and move on um very admirable young man and what age is he now joe 32 yeah <laughs> and he's playing the golf of his life 32 like Amazing. he's i think um the wider sports audience still looks at him thinks god he hasn't won a major what's going on here is he f throwing it all away what he's done the last year is super mm. impressive. He, he was so unlucky not to win a major this year. I think next year he could easily win two majors. Like he's, I think he's about to explode. So he's, he's done so well on that. He, he's not all the live golf, all the publicity, all the trappings that are going on with him ever increasingly have not detracted from his golf. He's actually put in serious work in the last year as well. Looks like there could be a maturity there. Like, yeah. you know, you see a lot of guys like hurlers and footballers tend to hit a peak even at around that age. Golf is a bit different. But like he could hit a he could hit a peak now and yeah. it could just roll for he could. five to six years. I think he's looking for I think he's looking at ten years of consistency now and, mm. and could well have it. So um that's McElroy. The concussion comes up in two different pieces. So the Sunday Times the piece is called uh, the contact conundrum mm. and then uh, danger zone mail on Sunday so um, you picked out these pieces Gary did, yeah. this is sports uh, contact sports never ending so, so I'm, I'm looking over there on your on your um, on your wall of glory there and you've got a, a Northwestern uh, football helmet there they were in town a couple of weeks ago and I'm a big fan of American college football so uh, last week, one of the one of the most recent graduates of American college football to make his name in uh, professional football uh, is the Miami quarterback, uh, who I know as uh, Tua, but he go is Tua Tago Viola. And uh, I was saying to, to a colleague of mine at work on Monday, you want to see what this guy endured when he got hit by uh, the Buffalo Bills uh, last night. And he got up and he was wobbling and then he stopped and then he walked a little bit more and he wobbled a little bit more and they took him off for a HIA. And it was quite obvious that this guy had a bad concussion. So he went off, came back on at halftime and led the Miami Dolphins to, to victory over the Buffalo Bills. Now, 
anyone that was watching that match and I was watching it live would would have said that's crazy that guy should never be back on yeah. um so they had a game then on Thursday night. Um, um, four days later. Four days later. And they were playing against uh, Cincinnati, I think it was. And he got sacked. But he didn't just get sacked. It was a vicious throw to the ground. Uh, vicious now. And, but that's what's encouraged in American football. But when he fell to the ground, he hit his head. And he had a fit live on TV. And the game stopped for seven minutes whilst he was taken off the pitch and uh, he was brought uh, to hospital. And there hasn't been an update. But this guy has been on my radar for the last three years because in his last college football game for Alabama, he was a Heisman Trophy uh, candidate. He was going for a record number of uh, touchdowns and he had no reason to be on the pitch. Alabama were up by 50 points, but he wanted to play on uh, and the reserve quarterback wanted to come on for the college. And he refused to come off because he wanted to play another one last play. And in that last play, he got caught from behind by a, an opponent and he had a fractured dislocation of his hip. Now that is a seriously bad injury to have. And then he put himself into the draft. So he was patched up by the orthopedic surgeon's fractured hip, can be career ending. And he was picked by the Miami Dolphins, even though he wasn't going to, he, he couldn't actually walk when he was being picked in the draft. Um, and he's done well for the Miami Dolphins, a uh, wonderful player. But he's quite an amazing uh, athlete, but yet is a pure commodity when it comes down to it for the, for the Miami Dolphins. Nothing more than you get on there, you throw the ball, and you make us win. We don't care about your concussion. Mm. And it's a seriously bad uh, advertisement for uh, the sport. So that was one piece. And then the other piece was the... Piece in is in the Independent, is it? Uh, that um, it's Peter, I don't have it in front of me. Peter O'Reilly in the Sunday, Peter Times. Times. Sunday Times. Yeah, he so spent, he, spent he the week goes, with Leinster. Yeah, he goes yeah. out to the Leinster uh, Training Academy, and uh, they they go through it uh, at uh, level two. Is it level two that they've got contact but no heavy contact? And this is how Stuart Lancaster is uh, treating the the whole uh, head injury and protecting his players, and. I think it's in stark contrast to what the Miami Dolphins did, and that's why I wanted to highlight the two right. the, the two pieces. Because, as a doctor uh, and loving the sport of rugby, I just think that rugby has come to accept this uh, and work around it a little bit better than American football. And yet, we had the piece during the week uh, that we have the three Irish players who are now suing their provinces and the IRFU for post-concussion syndrome and uh, the the adverse effects of their rugby on their well-being now that they're in their 40s and 50s. Mm. So it's watch this space, uh, you know, with interest. The um, Peter Riley week with Leinster was very, very interesting. I mean, it's, it's great insight. And so he, he spends the week with them. They're trying to be proactive rather than reactive, they say. So... Um, on Monday, for instance, the centrepiece, 35 minutes of non-stop rugby, noisy, frantic, yet controlled, 30 players, two balls, po- pausing only to set up starter plays that have been walked through in the gym already. As Gary said, players operated at, at level two contact, which is same speed as a match, but with control contact, mock breakdowns rather than real collisions, intense enough to force decision making under pressure and to test skills. How often do they go to level three, which is live rugby? Hardly ever, says Lancaster. Forwards might do a little when they're uh, defending live malls or live scrums. Uh, Lancaster was part of the World Rugby Working Party that came up with a recommended weekly uh, contact limit of 15 minutes spread over at least two sessions. 
And Peter Riley asked him, is there ever a temptation to do more? And he says, uh, no, his coaching philosophy, all about playing to space. So um, it was a great insight. And, and I guess they talk later in the piece about how, you know, biomarkers to check for concussion instantly is the, is the holy grail. And they're not quite there yet. But the, the mouth guards are now common in the Gallagher uh, Premiership and already used by some Leinster players. And they can measure the force of the collisions. They can't tell you if you're concussed, but they can tell you what you were hit with. And there seems to be a real, in fairness to them, awareness at Leinster, like Will Connors is embarking on a PhD on the benefits of improved tackle techniques. And they talk a bit about tackle technique in this piece and how if there are routine concussion victims owing to poor tackle technique, they really focus on working with them. And uh, later on, Lancaster talks about rules that he would change at the uh, breakdown to try and limit what we saw happen with Bundiaki uh, last weekend. And, and he, he makes his case there. And he also says, by the way, let's speed up the game, have a higher ball and play time, and it follows that you'll need more athletic and lighter players with lighter collisions as opposed to, you know, South Africans, for instance, time-wasting the Lions Tour so they can keep their beefier players on for longer and have bigger hits as a result. Does the um, medical professional in you, when you're sitting there watching Leinster, increasingly, and, and you know, that, that high court case, do you, do you find yourself taking less joy from the physicality? I think it, last week when I was at the game and you saw Keelan Dyers uh, go off very early uh, for a HIA and not come back on, um, I, I think that I'm actually impressed uh, by how proactive they are and how they'll always err on the side of caution. Yeah. Going way back to when uh, Brian O'Driscoll wasn't allowed back onto the pitch uh, by the Irish doctor at the time, Jim McShane, who kept him in the changing rooms, even though Brian wanted to go back on saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. He said, they are absolutely not fine. We're keeping you here. And Ireland went on and lost the game uh, with Brian off the pitch. Uh, so it's that... Um, that kind of discipline uh, is impressive. Uh, and despite that, we're going to see people who are, who are suffering. But those are the risks of the game. Um, but, and they don't take unnecessary risks, it would appear, yeah. unlike the American football. Like, Michael, when you were training, did you always wear your helmet in training? Yeah, no, I did you always did. wore it. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah. Do, does everyone? Uh, generally in Ireland now, yeah, since the helmets were brought in, nearly everything is hel- oh, okay. hel- helmets on. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's like one good, adv- definitely good advancement that we've made. Now, you'd have you probably would question some of the helmets are uh, legacy helmets that have been going around for twenty years. Like my helmet is quite old. Like whether it would pass uh, okay. technically, whether it would pass the protocol of you know a, a helmet that has got the stamp on it. Now, I I I probably think it wouldn't, and I'd say a lot of guys wouldn't. But they do. Wear, we definitely would wear the helmets a lot more than we would have before. Yeah. So you. You're still on your motorbike, Joe? Do you still ride? Yeah. It's and when, when did you change your helmet last? And do you have the same helmet now that you bought with your first bike? No. No, so you changed it. Why? Four years, maybe, because I dropped the other one. Yeah. <laughs> that was quite, I, I mean, I, it was fine. It wasn't damaged, but I dropped it and I thought. Okay. There was a nagging voice at the back of my mind saying. Right. Well, you're unlike most people who obviously, you know, that... But most helmets, they're just worn for this, you know, to yeah. for the sake of wearing them, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, no one takes care of them. Uh, so, 
not wearing helmets and uh, in which the game of rugby uh, doesn't doesn't wear helmets and those head guards that uh, some of the guys wear whether they're whether they're protective or not uh, because you've got the coup and contra coup type of injuries that uh, that um, will bring about concussion the, the jury is out on them when does they work and most people are wearing them to protect their ears you know rather than uh, the, their head um so i do i does it make me want to fall out with the ga- of love with the game of rugby? No, um, I think that I, everyone, and there are smarter and more involved people than I who are addressing this problem. But uh, but uh, there's no simple answer to it, or else uh, you know we would have it. Um, tackle technique, etc. That's fine. But they do re- talk in this piece, this uh, Peter O'Reilly piece about. And they asked Stuart Lancaster about, you know, what, what do you do then when you're coming up against a French team like La Rochelle? And what La Rochelle did to Leinster last year in, in the final, it's completely different. But Leinster almost made it. You know, they, they were 90 seconds mm-hmm. away from pulling off a, a great escape. Yeah. Um, but you just have to get physical with them. And then it becomes, it, that, that kind of a game is... I don't like that game. You know, I like the Lancaster uh, play into space. You know, keep it, keep it, keep it loose mm. and free. Mm. Um, but most games aren't like that either. You know? Just quickly on the helmet issue, racing is one sport that has really uh, went. At, they've really gone after how can they protect the jockeys as much as possible. I don't know if you saw Ross Ryan, the Galway jockey, basically been pushed or elbowed, elbowed off yeah. horse the other day. I didn't see it. I yeah, read about it. It was very, very bad. And Christoph Sumian, who is riding in the arc three amps a day which he shouldn't really be like he got 60 day ban since but had he not been wearing this reinforced helmet this reinforced back protector like I'd shudder to think what the consequences were but it's definitely one sport that has really gone after how can we our jockeys are going to fall how can we protect them as much as possible I remember chatting a jockey his uh, Sean Flanagan I think it was he got kicked on the ground his helmet cracked the kick of the horse but had he not like he said he changed helmets recently before that and had he not mm. I shudder to think what the consequences were but they've really gone after that element of protecting the jockeys as much as possible and like this consequence of that, that the other day could have been catastrophic, catastrophic were he not wearing the protective gear that he was there's a very famous photo uh, of uh, Nicky English, uh, you know, w- w- with running through uh, when he was playing for Tipperary. Have you seen that yeah, one? With the uh, hurl yeah, yeah. underneath his nose, uh, someone coming across uh, his face. And you just go, wow, that, that, that is just <laughs> incredible. <laughs> that, uh, he's just caught, caught in a moment of time by Billy Stickland, I think. And uh, uh, so your sport, uh, you know, that, that you love, I look at that and I just go, that's, that's um, madness, you know. But you're very reliant on other people's skill in order. Yeah. For, so the, the, the higher the level, the safer it becomes, I presume. 100%, you know? yeah. They, everybody knows how to protect themselves a lot more. And there's a lot. That's why a lot of the stuff you'll see would be in junior A, B and C, where there's a lot of wildness. Right. Yeah. It was like a dance at the top level. In, in close kind contact, of, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of. But to go and play at that lower level, that's where you learn how to protect yourself. If you can protect yourself at that level, you'll be fine at Intercounty. How many fingers have you broken? Uh, not too many. Thumb, index finger, couple, yeah, bits and pieces. I'm sure they were all, they're all out of place anyway. Never met a hurler who hadn't. <laughs> yeah, no. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.
you picked out a piece. Speaking of GAA, so I mean, look, you're, it's, it, you love your GAA and you, like lots of GAA journalists, are, are thinking, well, how do we cover this new reality post um, the split season? So you like the famous Callan boys in the Sunday Times, for instance? Yeah, I did indeed. I'm heading down to the to the Leash Hurling final after after I finish up here. Um, it's a nice few county finals today. There's loads over the next four weekends, a huge amount of them. But this is kind of a fascinating story. So the the three Callans, uh, Jack, Damien and Connor, they hurled for St. Finbars, but they play football for Castlehaven. So in a scenario that you would only see in the GA, Castlehaven footballers are playing St Finbars in football this week so they played for the Bars last week and booked a place in the county final I think they're trying to win it for the first time since 83 and now they're playing against a heap of the lads that they played with last week <laughs> and Christy O'Connor just goes into it here uh, just give a brief bit of context he just says when Clondagad and Cora Clare met in last year's Clare senior football relegation semi-final Cora Clare were instantly bailing water from a sinking ship Clondagad should have had been outside at half time delayed by 8 points entered the 4th quarter their final winning margin was 15 Clondagad advanced to a relegation decider against Kilrush which they won Cora Clare went down Damien Burke and Pierce Lillis had no time or inclination to feel sorry for themselves so they were hurt for Ballier uh, against Kilmaley in a hurling quarter final and they were going to be playing with a load of the guys who had put them in a load of trouble the week before and he just thought they just the quotes go in here so Pierce and Tony Kelly Pierce Lewis was marking Tony Kelly in football they went at it like they never knew each other they were boxing each other off the ball this is in football and then a week later they're playing hurling and they eventually win a county title together and have played in the club all Ireland it's just I don't know. Club is fascinating in that way. In that way, and I think uh, the me- the media have to deal with the split season. Is the split season is going to be here to stay now? And we need to really go after. Like, there's so many good stories in the club season. Andy Morn uh, retired yesterday from Balladrine. He was obviously on the football yeah. pod a couple of years ago. Got a guard of honour walking out. Was presented with a jersey. Scored three three as only Andy could in his last game. Like mm. there are stories like that. Andy's in thirty nine. There are guys. Kieran McManus is forty six playing senior B midfield for Tubber. Like there's stories that length and breadth of the country, including this about the Callans as well. Fascinating stuff that at inter county it's just a lot more sanitised. Shall we say you just won't see this type of thing and. In fairness to club players, I've, I've, I could count them on hand the amount of times I've been turned down for an interview for a club player coming up to a county final. Mm-hmm. Like, you couldn't ring an inter-county player a month before and it had to be at some sort of a, you know, a press gig or something like that. So I think the access is great. The access is there. It's just a matter of, I think, the media taking advantage of it. And for you, what marks success? Like, previous people who sat in that seat and we talked about this issue have bemoaned the fact that you just can't get that national interest in a given club game on a given weekend. Do you see a point in the next couple of years where you might get half a million watching a club game on TV or will it always just have limited uh, interest levels and that's okay, it's a participation move as opposed to... Yeah, I'm not sure if you're ever going to get half a million bar, you know, it's maybe you have a superstar like David Clifford playing in a game where everybody wants to see you. But uh, like, if you were to... Like we've eighty two thousand people come to Crow Park, eighty two thousand three hundred for the All Ireland final. We attend that and they'll watch that. Yeah. But if you in, over the next four weekends, if you were to accumulate mm. the attendances at county finals and interbreded country and semi finals and quarter finals, like that would blow the All Ireland out of That's water. A great way to look completely, at it. Yeah. Completely yeah. blow it out of the water. Like David Clifford played for Fawcett in the Kerry Junior Football Championship and there was a pitch invasion after about hundred kids just running down to him. 
Like that's you say people say that we we're not going to see our heroes. I don't I don't buy it because whatever club you are, Joe, or whatever club you are, uh, Gary, you're going to see them. You're going to see them. You just they're five minutes away. Mm. Go and watch them. And uh, like my heroes growing up, Johnny Pilkington, Brian Whelan, Rory Hanafy. I got, got to play with them all. They were so such easy access to me, and they're the guys I still go back to. So every clo- every every young kid, every guy and girl has their heroes. Mm very close to their doorstep so it doesn't matter if there's not mass national attention on one given game it's the multitude combined. yeah I, I don't think it, and I don't know if there's ever going to be on one particular I game I think so either. yeah barring yeah. an All-Ireland club final which is like a, you know a Ballygunner and a Ballyhale which has a mass appeal because you've TJ Reid and the Mannies and uh, lots of big names but focus on you know like the coverage in the Midland Tribune of the Offaly finals outstanding pages upon pages upon pages of access and information that all the locals would read it'll be saying Willow Callaghan will be on Midland Sport today waxing lyric about the Offaly hurling final and all the focus will be on that and then you move to Leash and it'll be the same in Leash nationally maybe it's a bit more difficult but there are still lots of there's still lots of really good stuff to go after nationally and so the key point there is some people will, will come on and say well this is going to be a death knell for the GA. they're giving up you know this mm. portion of the summer when they could have national attention but if each local media is invested in the local game then it's fine oh yeah 100% G- it's thriving, yeah. It's thriving yeah. within those counties it mightn't look like it, na- like it nationally but it's thriving within those clubs and counties very good okay um, I'll come to your Formula 1 piece in just a second uh, Gary I just want to give brief mention Alison Rudd just sums up an interesting week if you, we talked about guitar quite a bit in this slot so just if you weren't following what's happened this week she um, puts two points together Hummel first of all they provide the kit for Denmark and they have decided to block out their logo from Denmark shirts as a form of protest we don't want to be visible during a tournament that's cost thousands of people their lives is what Hummel have said now and she does make the point the company was praised however the stance can also be regarded as a publicity stunt that does more to promote the brand then highlight the deaths caused by poor working conditions in Qatar. Uh, it's very hard indeed not to look self-serving in such circumstances. If the Denmark team are happy to wear the new monochrome kit, should they be content to be in Qatar at all? Uh, you could argue they're being hypocritical. But uh, she does praise Hummel, I guess, for starting something of a conversation. And then just the other point, uh, she talks of uh, it being some kind of progress. And she does uh, remark on what happened with the Iran team this week as well, which you may have missed And the context here is interesting. So at the World Cup in Russia, the captain of the Iran team, he was asked at that World Cup, and this I I missed this four years ago, to be honest. He was asked if he welcomed playing in front of female fans. And he refused to answer, saying it would be disrespectful to the competition to discuss the issue. I prefer to solve our family within our family. Or sorry, I I I prefer to solve our problem within our family, he said. And Alison Rudd makes the point, fast forward four years... Iran's football team covered their country's symbols with their jackets during the national anthems before a friendly against Senegal on Tuesday as part of the countrywide protest after the death of that 22-year-old woman on September 16th. She'd been arrested by Iran's morality police for violating the strict Islamic dress code. And she makes the point that is quite the progression from wanting to keep any disquiet over the rights of women in Middle East a private matter four years ago. And now she said it may sound small, but keeping your jacket on uh, marked a shift in mood and yes levels of bravery so that was quite an interesting development from the Iran football team the subjugation of Iranian women is not uh, cultural she writes but political and therefore a political gesture was entirely uh, appropriate so that was Alison Rudd just summing up I guess the the bubbling uh, sport politics um, situation uh, the Iran football team and Hummel the Denmark jersey manufacturer Gary you picked out Formula 1 
piece. Are you a drive to survive type or have you always liked it? Always liked it. Okay. Went to my first Grand Prix in the early 90s, actually, uh, and I've been to a couple since. And uh, people, people tend to love or hate it. Uh, and, um, and when you talk to people about Grand Prix, uh, often they're looking at you saying, why on earth would you waste your time uh, uh, at, at that sport? And then the well, drive... Can, can I read a sentence? Actually, yes. this, so the, this is why this sport to me does not... Not a sport. My, not a sport is what you're going oh, to say. Oh, it's a sport. Okay. It's a sport. But I mean, like, the way Michael talked about the Callans there, that human interest. Yeah. Whereas this piece in The Observer has this to knock your head off with emotion, Michael. <laughs> the low drag concept, this is about the new Red Bull car. The low drag concept allied to a powerful engine and a newie, that's their... Um, engineer yeah yeah. Uh, his his brilliant exploitation of the new ground effect aerodynamic rules delivered one of Red Bull's most complete cars for almost a decade this is what get this man up at five (laughs) in the morning to watch watch this (laughs) there's a lights out Grand Prix in Las Vegas next next year November 2023 okay starts at 10pm at night I'm a big Vegas fan I'd go to that I'd go to that now if I could at all if I'm reasonable yeah Uh, the point here is Red Bull have been utterly dominant is that it yeah well no, the point is, for, first and foremost, uh, th- there is fuel to the fire for the people that hate Grand Prix and don't think it's a sport. Because there's a huge commotion over the weekend about Lewis Hamilton refusing to take out his nose stud whilst he was racing in the Formula One car. Okay, So when people who don't like Grand Prix read a story like that, they're just going, come on, folks. you know." So he, he wasn't fined. But Mercedes were fined $25,000 for allowing him to drive the car during qualifying with his nose stood in place. Okay, Lewis Hamilton has come back and saying the nose stood is soldered in place. It cannot come out. And he has a doctor's letter of exemption. So you can see these people now at home going, I told you, it's nonsense. It's a stupid thing. Why would you waste your time? Then you have the threatened legal action by Christian Horner uh, um, and um, uh, Toto Wolf, who are the principals, the team principals for Red Bull and for Mercedes-Benz. And that's what it's all about, really. The drivers are secondary to this, except for Lewis Hamilton, who transcends the whole sport at the moment because he's untouchable, really. not in terms of winningness, but in terms of what he can say, what he can do, and what he can get away with. But the two team principals hate one another, mm-hmm. and uh, they're threatened legal action. But this legal action could spill over to the championship decider last year. Do you remember everyone was getting all yeah. excited about this, that there was whoever won, and then Lewis Hamilton. It would appear, uh, as a Hamilton fan, that Lewis Hamilton was hard done by in that race when they allowed the lapped cars, some of them, to pass him out to bring Verstappen up closer to him uh, so that Verstappen could pass him on the last lap. And so there is that interest in the background, and that's what fascinates me. Uh, that's, that's, that's why I think it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating two hours of entertainment uh, that I watch it for. I watch every Grand Prix, uh, and I record it. I'll watch the, the qualifying. Um, and I have gotten into a Formula 3 car. And when you get into a Formula 3 car, which is a single-seater car, and you're driving that around, 
you just think, my God, how can those guys do this? You know, you get out after one, one lap, your heart rate is about 160, you're profusely sweating, uh, you're jammed in there. It's like being in a, a coffin-like environment trying to steer a car around, and these guys are doing it at such uh, huge speeds. So they are tremendously skilled, oh, tremendously yeah. highly skilled. I, I didn't think there was a, it's not a sport, is it? And only 20 of them in the world. argument. Yeah, of course. I, I think most people think it's a sport. I mean, I, I wouldn't put much um, truck in the argument. It's not. Um, aside from the technical aspects, which I, to me are just imperceptible, oh, like the human aspect of this is amazing. I mean, the, the drama mm. last year was off the charts. And I mean, some of the best documentaries and, and pieces of television like Senna and even Drive to Survive are exceptional. I would find the Grand Prix themselves, the two hours, tough enough work to to stay with. But sure. the big picture stuff is amazing. Well, that's very... It's, it's like uh, in, in hurling, when I'm watching hurling, I'd be very, very reliant on the commentators or the expert analysis to tell me what exactly I should be looking out for and going, you, yeah. you know, looking for. Hurling, GAA, the same. Other sports, I can look at it and I can watch and I can understand what's going on. But when it comes to Grand Prix motor racing, you are absolutely 100% reliant on the guy that's commentating and to tell you what's going on or what the tactics are going to be and what you should be looking out for. And that's what makes it. And at the moment, they do have a great commentary team with Sky. That allied to the Drive to Survive Netflix series has brought in an awful lot of more fans um, to, to the whole thing. And the going there or watching it for two hours you've got to really pay attention to what the commentators are saying because mm-hmm. you can get lost then and in actual fact last year or the year before when Hamilton won it the, the, not last year but the year before when Hamilton won it and ran away with it in the same way as Verstappen is running away with it this year the actual races themselves are a little bit boring yeah, yeah. you know and uh, you really want everyone watches the start because you want to see a pile up at the first corner Everyone watches the first few laps to see whether, you know, their their favourite, like today, Verstappen, can he make it from eighth place up into first place? How long will it take him to overtake? Yeah. You know, and when he comes up behind Hamilton, who's going to be in third place, what's going to happen? It's all very predictable, but yet I find it addictive. Mm. Uh, um, and for, for, for someone who likes other sports where the there, there's less of the external influences in terms of team strategy, engines, fuel load, tires, etc., etc. I, I sometimes surprise myself about how interested I am in this when I actually think part of it is pantomime-like. Hmm. I don't know why that makes sense. Yeah, well, like, the thing I remember most from Formula 1 is Schumacher running uh, Damon Hill off the track in Adelaide in 94. Like, they're the they're the things you remember are Senna's lap in the rain at Silverstone remember that where he I don't know overtook a crazy amount of people but and the pile-ups at the mm. first corner usually did you, as well did you yeah. watch last year Michael no I didn't no I haven't got back into it to be honest with you. Enough, I haven't got yeah. back into it um, I'm usually I'm good for doing things after the fact like I watch things when they're no longer popular when they were in vogue maybe five years previous so I'll maybe go back and watch Drive to Survive when everybody else is talking about something else well, well not everyone loves Grand Prix I can tell you that because you know um, I know a man who's sitting at this table here that took his wife to a Melbourne Grand Prix for their anniversary and it wasn't really appreciated. <laughs> so, oh, this is like, uh, yeah. when, we li- when we lived in Australia, I'd say yeah. now. Oh, <laughs> okay, fair enough. It's, it's like Homer Simpson gets a bowling ball for Mark for birthday. <laughs> a long flight home. Oh, my God. Yeah, no, no, no. It, um, wasn't, it, uh, it's, it's, it went down like a lead balloon. <laughs> 
We are um, pretty much out of time. I've got to be in the radio in five minutes. Before we go, Michael, you have a big evening that I know you've put a lot of work into. Do you yeah. want to give it a plug and a mention? Because it's for a great cause as well. Yeah, uh, just fair play to the, the lads in the sin, though. They put, managed to put a number 11 aside the, the awfully hurling county fine story by Dermot Crow. But we have a big fundraiser in the County Arms Hotel on Thursday, October 13th, reeling in the hurling years. Uh, we've got Anthony Daly, Eddie Brennan, Dan Shanahan, uh, Cyril Farrell, Michael Dignan, our own legends, Brian Wheelett and Johnny Pilkington. We have two special guests in the night as well, uh, Jockey Gary, Barry Gerrity and Mickey Hart. And it's all for, we're doing a big, huge redevelopment work in St. Brendan's Park, where the Offaly final will be played next year, again, for the first time in 17 years. And uh, there'll be a bit of a question of sport on the night as well. It should, right. be, a, should be a cracking night now, hoping to hoping to pack out the place so you can get tickets on Eventbrite uh, forward slash reeling in the hurling years, I think it is. So yeah, I'd love to see you. Uh, I'd love to see everybody there in the night. We should have great crack, yeah? Great, so Eventbrite forward slash reeling in the hurling years yeah go to Eventbrite and it'll pop up anyway or give me a text or DM me or contact me in any way there are tickets there to go for for a, a limited time I'd say because the the uh, demand is getting quite strong which is great ok good man uh, thank you both very much for coming to the studio Gary O'Toole Michael Verney pleasure fellas thank you thank Here's you Joe, Joe. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball 